myself, organize yourself, and if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 39. Luke chapter 6, verse 39. just want to read uh, two verses, Luke 6, 39 and verse 40. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. I'm probably going to sit down this morning. Uh, it's very first century church style. But uh, rabbis stood to read the scriptures and then sat to teach. Partly also I've been popping painkillers and tramadol all week. So... Um, I'm okay now, but if I gradually fall asleep, just politely turn the light out and leave quietly. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. Just leave me to my snooze. No, all seriousness, the pain's been dealt to and uh, we're all good. Lyndon asked me if I would talk on the subject of being a disciple, of discipleship. As one of the core values that Lyndon's leading us through at the moment in the values of what it means to be the Vineyard family, the Vineyard Church. Um, my journey with the Vineyard Church actually began in 1986 when John Wimber first came to New Zealand with his first conference. And uh, I took a team from the church we were pastoring in the Hawke's Bay up and uh, discovered a movement that put theology and handles to a lot of things we'd been experiencing and practicing. And now we're able to marry a few things together. And one of the things I greatly valued out of that movement, but also out of my conversion to Christ in 1978, was this value of discipleship, of what it meant to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And for me, that was a life-transforming journey when in March 1978, I surrendered my life to Christ, having A, never read a Bible, B, never darkened the door of a church. Growing up more under the influences I've shared on a few occasions of the Islamic perspective of life from my father, a Middle Eastern Muslim, and the community we grew up with. And so I suddenly, I'm standing in my first church service like this, and people are raising their hands and singing to the ceiling, and they're reading from a book I've never read, and they're talking about stuff I've never heard. So the poor pastor, I bombarded him. Like I said to him, and this, uh, this leads into what discipleship's about, and this man was an amazing discipler of young men in the church. Many of us in my age group ended up going on the mission field or into ministry because of his discipling. And so I said to him, Jeff, People are talking about have a quiet time with God. What the heck's that? What, do you just find a corner and be quiet? You have to understand, Christianese language to people outside, it doesn't make sense. 
He said, oh, no, it's not quite like that. He said, you really want to learn to spend time with God? I said, yeah. He said, meet me in my study tomorrow at 5.30. This is how he discipled. I said, okay. Went. He lived around the corner from me. Went to his study, 5.30. He said, oh, bring your Bible. He said, now you sit in the corner there and you watch me have my quiet time for the next hour. And I was like, this is weird. This is really voyeuristic. You know, I am sitting in the corner watching this guy. But he ignored the fact that I was there. And he knelt down at the couch in his study. He opened his Bible. He read it out loud. He prayed, cried. He wept as he prayed for people in the church. He wished God. He wrote notes in his journal. And then we sat down and he explained what he'd been doing to me. That was 1978. To this day, I read my Bible and have my quiet time the way he showed me. That's discipleship. When Jesus called the disciples, come follow me, he did not give them a handbook. He did not give them a curriculum. He gave them himself. So I want to talk about what does it mean to be a disciple and what does it mean to be a discipler? Because we are all both. Whether you realize it actively or not, your life is influencing somebody. And especially the moment people know you're a Christian, there's an invisible sign over your head that lights up. Watch this space. You're under examination. Jesus is telling a whole lot of truths, as it were, in this two verses we've read. In chapter 6, this is Luke's very edited account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which you can read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's stringing a whole lot of very pithy, quick-fire points together, as it were. And sometimes you wonder if there's a connection between them all. What's the context? How does one relate to another? But it was not an uncommon way for Jewish rabbinic teaching uh, that uh, the Hebrew word for it translates into English, stringing pearls. And how a rabbi would often teach is he would take a whole lot of truths and string them together. The word could also mean gems or treasures. And the idea was that you'd, it came from the concept of jewellery, of stringing together a pearl necklace to put around a woman's neck. And so Jesus would take all these pearls of truths. And this is, you understand that when you get the word too, where he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. These are things of value that you must treasure. They're treasure truths. And in the midst of all this, Jesus is actually talking either side of these two verses about judging others. About, in a sense, thinking that you are more important and know more than anyone else, and therefore you with the log in your own eye can take the speck of dust out of the other person's eye. And in the midst of this, he transitions and he stops and it says, and he told them this parable. And there's two like rhetorical questions. One is, is answered in the negative and the positive. Can a blind man lead a blind man? What's the answer? 
No, of course not. In Jewish, the way it's conveyed, it's almost humorous. It's like, well, this is obvious. Can a blind man lead a blind man? No. Will they not both fall into a pit? The terrain in Palestine in that time was filled with holes and potholes. We were called potholes. We drive into them now. They would walk into them, and the results could be disastrous. And Jesus is spelling out a very simple warning, saying, basically it's this, be very careful who you choose to follow. Who you allow to influence your life. Because if they're blind to all sorts of things, if they don't see God clearly and understand the ways of God clearly, they will influence you in a way that will lead you astray. We are never called to have blind faith. We are never called to just follow blindly the teaching of people. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, John in his letter, 1 John 4, both talk about test things. Check out whether they're true. Hold fast to that which is right. In Acts 17, Paul commended the Berean Christians because he taught them and then he commended them because they went away to check out in the scriptures of what Paul was saying was true. We are not called to blind faith. So Jesus is saying very clearly, be very careful who you choose to do life with. Who you allow into your life to disciple, to mentor, to influence you. Who you learn from. Growing up with a Turkish dad, I learned there's a Turkish proverb. Choose your friends before you choose your journey. Interesting phrase, eh? Choose your friends before you choose your journey. Who we journey with influences us. I saw it in myself as a teenager looking for relationship, for purpose in life before coming to Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company, what? Corrupts good character. You see it with young people. We see it with our children, with our grandchildren, the company they keep because there is this longing and cry of the human heart to want to what? Belong. To belong with a sense of purpose. And so we see vulnerable children and vulnerable teenagers belonging to all the wrong things at times. And I'm going to come to that point in an implication towards the end. And I should... Oh, there's no clock. Great. Timeless message. Sorry, I'll take my watch off. My kids don't like my handmade strap. It reminds me of my teenage years anyway. Dad, it looks like a wrestler's wristband. In this concept of discipleship, I want to talk about it and paint a picture, then come back to what for me have been the implications of discipleship over the years. And I want to paint the picture from the Jewish rabbinic point of view of how education and discipleship occurred. And there were three essential stages. The first was called uh, Beth Sefer, the house of the book. And that was the responsibility of the parents and very often also the synagogue. But most children in those cultures and Middle Eastern cultures were essentially homeschooled. The father helped and had a trade 
like Jesus in his earthly life, his father Joseph was a carpenter, his workshop would have been attached to the house. And Jesus would have learned from him. And at the age of five, they were tapped on the shoulder to begin the house of the book. And taking a verse a day till they were ten, they memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. And if you've read Leviticus, that's hard going. They read them, they could recite them, and they understood them to a large degree. Then at 10, they were tapped on the shoulder. If they did well there, the best of the best went on to the next phase, Beth Midrash, which was the house of um, study. And they would now begin to study the rest of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, to learn the prophets, the wisdom literature, etc., etc. And they would continue that till they were 13, whereby they would then have their bar mitzvah, where they would become the age of accountability, the boy would become a man, and there was a ceremony for a woman, would become a girl, a woman. And the boy particularly was now no longer the responsibility of the father for his decisions and his sins. <laughs> So you sin, son, it's all on you. And they would have this ceremony where they would become and be pronounced and blessed by the rabbi literally as a son of the law, a son of command, a son of instruction. They would continue that learning process to the age of 15 where they would then be tapped on the shoulder if they were the best of the best of the best to go then to Beth Talmud, the house of learning. And the person who tapped them on the shoulder at this point and took over the responsibility for their education was a rabbi. And the rabbi would cross-examine them, ask them questions to understand, to try and get an understanding of where they were. Did they understand the scriptures? And we're talking just the Old Testament at this point. And then get this, because this helps us understand discipleship. The rabbi would then, at the conclusion of that, literally give an invitation. And guess what his invitation was? Come, follow me. What did Jesus say to his disciples? It's the only invitation Jesus gave. Jesus never said, make a decision for me. Invite me into your heart and your life. His invitation was the same. It was rabbinic, come follow me. Now the person who was given that invitation knew the implications, knew from the history of Jewish Hebrew education what that meant. What that meant was that they would learn, and this was the phrase that was used, to walk in the dust of the rabbi. What that meant was they would so live in proximity to the, their rabbi until they were 30, whereby they would become a rabbi and they would start the process with someone else. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus, Luke tells us, entered his ministry at what age? 30. We don't realize in his humanity, Jesus went through all those three phrases and was called in Aramaic, Rabboni or rabbi. He was a teacher. So Jesus gives that invitation to us, just as the rabbi did in the culture of the day. So when Jesus walked up 
to people like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, the tax collector, and said, come follow me. They knew exactly what that meant. And the interesting thing is at the age of 15 for a young man, if you didn't get that come follow me invitation, you took up a trade. So what were Peter and his brother doing in James and John? They were fishermen. They didn't make the grade. And if you study their journey through the Gospels and with their interactions with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and especially in Acts, you basically get the fact that they were looked down upon, and Acts 4 calls them unschooled, uneducated men. So could you imagine their joy having failed <laughs> school Basically, the religious elite's attitude towards Jesus' disciples was these men went to the wrong schools and were uneducated. But it's to those ordinary, everyday people Jesus went up to and said, follow me. You're in. And they did. And they lived in close proximity to Jesus for the rest of his earthly life, just under around three and a half years. And he schooled them. And out of that journey of walking in the dust of the rabbi, the phrase was that you would walk so close to the rabbi behind him that as he walked, his dust would flick up and cover you. And so there's a, in, in the Jewish writings, I was reading this just recently, in the Mishnah, which are the oral traditions of the rabbis of how they interpreted and applied uh, the Old Testament, they talked about, in your home, sit with the sages and be covered in their dust and drink in their wisdom with thirst. The idea was that you got covered in what this person represented. And so what I want to do is go through with you several implications of what this has meant for me over the years um, as a disciple, a follower of Christ, and also especially as a father and now a grandfather of the world's nine most beautiful children. I know I say that each time, but sorry, they are. With an invitation, there's an implication, isn't there? I always had the saying in ministry, information leads to obligation. You know something, you're obligated to do something about it. You have to respond. So when Jesus gives an invitation, come follow me, there are implications to it. There are, how do I respond to that? I, I have, over the years, been more of a, what I call an implication preacher, not an application, because I can't apply this to your life because I don't know where you're at in your journey. But I can tell you what the implications are, and then it's your responsibility to do what you will with that. And the first implication that really challenged me, I will look at some notes to remind me, is this. When Jesus says, come follow me, the first implication for me is the willingness to learn to walk in the power of being second. To follow someone and submit to that relationship of, as Jesus said, when the student is fully trained, he'll become like his teacher, verse 40 of Luke 6, is that I am acknowledging the one giving me the invitation knows more than me, is greater than me, and that's what the relationship between the rabbi and the student was. It's learning to live in the power of being second. 
So when Jesus gives us that invitation, come follow me, he makes it clear all through the Gospels, not just implicitly, but explicitly clear, I am Lord, I am Master, I am the Teacher, you are the Disciple, you are the Servant, you follow me. I'm, all, I'm glad it's also follow in terms of a walk. It's not, you run after me and sprint, I'm in a, I'm in a hurry. It's you follow me, so the first implication that challenged me in learning what it was to be a Christian, a disciple, is am I willing to submit and surrender my life to the power of being second? That Jesus is Lord. And then Jesus, at the end of his sermon on the mountain, Matthew 7, made it clear. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you what? Don't do what I say. See, there's a direct correlation between acknowledging Jesus as my Savior and Lord and my living in the power of second and obeying what he says. If that's not there, then that relationship isn't true to what it's meant to be. It goes against the human grain and nature, doesn't it? The second implication for me is carried out further where Jesus then in Luke 9 where he talks about those who would come after me must what take up their cross Luke adds and deny themselves and follow me and what is it if you gain the world what and lose your soul the second implication that challenges me which is directly related to the first is am I willing to live in the power of second am I willing to take up my cross and die to my own agenda and take up Christ's? Am I willing to live for what really matters most rather than grasping and grabbing at the things of this world that will ultimately consume my soul? Great Francis Schaeffer in one of his sermons called Ash Heap Lives talked about the fact when he observed the Western world in America particularly, he said most of us spend our lives grasping at material things that ultimately will end up on the ash, ash heap of the rubbish dump. How many have done trips to the dump, the inorganic? And sometimes you think, did I really need that? When Pip and I left Auckland um, and moved up to where we live in Badley's Beach, we moved from two levels multiple bedrooms and two bathrooms and all of that to 42 square meters of house. So we hired a storage shed in Walkworth and put everything we couldn't fit in, which was a lot of stuff, into the storage shed. And we'd watched a documentary on minimalist living. And we asked ourselves the question, if in the next number of months we don't go back to the shed to get that, we didn't need it. We sold little and gave away a whole heap of stuff. Set my books. <laughs> it was a test in what is important. What's of value? Do I want to gain the world and lose my soul? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor during World War II, who opposed Hitler and Nazi, the Nazi regime, was imprisoned, tortured, 
And the day before VE Day, Victory Day, they killed him. One day shy of being released. He wrote the most amazing book called The Cost of Discipleship, which was his study of the, largely of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this very confronting statement. He said, when Jesus calls someone, come follow me, take up your cross, he first bids you, first come and die. That's language we don't really talk about or hear. But Jesus said, that's what it means to be a disciple. Because then if you, this paradoxical statement of Christ, if you lose your soul for my sake, you actually what? Gain it. You gain life. You gain what is of value. But if you gain this world and lose your soul, you've lost everything. That to me was the second implication. The third is this. Jesus' invitation to be a disciple and follow him was also an invitation to mission. When he rocked up to the fishermen, he said, come follow me, what? And then he added on, I will make you what? Fishers of men. I am not the world's greatest fisherman. I've caught boots, anchors, very little fish. And you'd think by living by the water, I'd be right into it. I've got to get into it. Um, I enjoy when you catch something, but I, it's not a natural inclination for me. I'd rather be in my workshop making something. Uh, I love working with my hands. So this statement, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There's two things I have learned about fishing. Is One is if you want to catch fish, you have to be what? Where they are. I'm not smart, I grew up in Glenis Pamir, but I figured that out. You've got to go to where the fish are. Secondly, you've got to use the what? Right bait to attract them, to influence them, to lure them, to hook them. The core discipleship of discipleship of mission is that Jesus has unleashed you and I who are learning to follow him in the power of being sick and dying to our own agenda, living to his mission to fish for the lives of people outside of a relationship with Christ. That means we have to be with them. That means we have to associate them just like Jesus did. That's why Jesus was labeled the friend of what? Sinners. He ate, he drank with them, he had meals with them, he was in their homes, he let a prostitute wash his feet. He associated with everyone that everyone else in the elite looked down upon. The implication for me that's really challenged me is, over the years as I've thought about it, is that this idea of mission, of evangelism, of we hear those words and it scares the daylights out of it, doesn't it? It's like, evangelism? Reaching out to people, I come down to a very simple thing for me after all these years is it's not about a program, it's not about a strategy. Yes, I must understand my faith so that as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, I can give an answer to the reason for the hope that's in me. When people say, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you go to church? That I could give a reasonable answer for that. But beyond that, I've realized that when Jesus goes fishing, 
for lost people in this world, I and you are the bait. There is no other bait that he uses. I wanted to lock myself away in a room when I came to that thought. Because I had to ask myself, what kind of bait am I? Do I repel people from the faith? Do I attract them to the faith? Do they get a taste of my life and think, I want what you've got? That's how I became a Christian. I met Pip at Sweet 16. I met my first Christian family. And it was nothing they said, but it was everything they were. Not perfect, but authentic and real. It was everything they were, nothing they said. They never preached at me. Never. They loved me. They welcomed me into their home. Her father had heart attacks at my lifestyle. Told Pip at one point, this relationship does not have my blessing. When he found out the kind of stuff I was into, and as I said to Pip later, I would never have let one of my daughters go out with someone like me. No way. Those boys that tried, their bodies will never be found. No. <laughs> Sorry, I have a very dark sense of humour. <laughs> and my girls lived happily ever after. <laughs> but the implication of mission is we're the bait. It's how we are living more than anything we are saying that is the message that people want to see. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 put it this way. He said to the Corinthians, you are my letter, not written on a tablet, but written in your heart, that the world is reading. What a frightening thought. Paul was saying, the way I am reaching the world through you is that my ministry as rabbi to student to you, as you've walked in the dust of my feet and have learnt from me, is the impression I've made on you, what I've deposited into you, is what other people are now reading about you in terms of how you treat them, how you relate to them, how you conduct your work, your finances, your speech, everything. Because if the watching world does not see something fundamentally different about you and I, it will not attract them. They'll say, well, they're just like me. That challenged me to the core of everything. My language. I had the privilege when I was a screen printer, which was my initial trade, of leading a young man who was apprenticed to me to Christ. He came to Christ. And he grew up in the same community I did, same kind of dynamic. So we got on really well. And in the end, um, he came to Christ. And I thought when he gave his life to Christ, it was because about my great gospel presentations. He ran out of a church service one Sunday evening. I found him literally on his face in the car park weeping, asking me how I become a Christian. We, I knelt with him in the car park. We prayed. He came to Christ Sunday night. I was chatting to him one day later and I said, oh, you know, what was it that really led you to Christ thing? He's going to really puff my ego up and tell me what a great apologist I was. He said, you just were interested in me. 
You invited me into your home for meals. No one's ever done that. He was a drug dealer. He said, you were interested in me. And I thought, is it that simple? Is it that simple? So the dust of my life influenced him. He changed overnight. The next morning, we're standing at the ink mixing bench of the screen shop, and our boss, who had a foul mouth, Marty, got another really dirty joke to tell you this morning. Martin turns to him, and I thought, well, I wonder what Martin's going to say. He goes, Link, I can't listen to those anymore. I became a Christian last night. I'm cleaning up my act. I kid you not, our boss dropped the ink on the bench, it spilt everywhere, and he stormed out of the workshop. He now had two in his workshop. <laughs> but what I'm saying in that is discipleship, if I'm the bait, is about every aspect of my life that speaks to the people watching. It's incredibly challenging. Fourthly, and coming to a quick close, and we've, we've sort of touched on this, is that I live a countercultural life to the watching world. It's different. It's different. They see the difference factor. The fifth thing that challenged me is this. I have a responsibility to pass on to the next generation what has been deposited into my life. That was the whole process of learning and discipleship in the rabbinic Hebrew model and that Jesus model, is that someone tapped on the shoulder of a 15-year-old boy and said, come follow me. In the house of learning. Discipled him. Then at 30, he became a rabbi and he passed on to the next generation and went to someone else and tapped them on the shoulder and said, come follow me. The question I've asked myself as a parent, particularly, and as a grandfather influencing grandchildren, is am I worth following? Because what I've learned is everything is about what? Example. Guy Emerson, an essayist, wrote, um, Who you are, shout so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. Who you are, shout so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. In John 13, the story where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he said to them, You know, you call me Lord and teacher, and that I am. So he was establishing the rabbinic relationship. I am Lord. I am your teacher. Now I have given you an example to follow. Go do likewise. He was showing that this whole educational discipling process was one of instruction and imitation, one of ex exhortation of words, but example of living. And the idea of following in the dust of the rabbi was this, that the disciple would so follow the rabbi through everyday life, they watched how he outworked what he knew in everyday life and relationships, how he treated people, how he did his business transactions, how he related to the world around him, so that they saw the application of truth. 
That's what that pastor was doing to me when he said, come and watch how I spend time with God. So I did that with young men. One young guy asked me, I said, come to my house at 5.30. He blimmin' well did. And guess what? I wasn't up. <laughs> when the knock on the door came, that was just, I, I acted like I'd been up for hours praying like a very righteous man. No. But I used the same patterns that were used with me to disciple a number of young men through their adolescence. It's instruction, but it's more imitation and example. When I finished Bible school, I set up a lawn mowing yard business while I waited to see what would happen next and did that for a couple of years. And I mowed a neighbor's lawn, so that was always last when I was doing their lawn. And one day I'm mowing their lawn next to our house and I could hear Pip yelling out and I turn around and here's my son. I think he would have been two? Two. We'd bought him a little plastic click-clack mower and he had little earmuffs on and here he was just following Dad. Cute, eh? You can see the picture and I go, oh, cute. Then I'm mowing the lawn watching him follow me and because I'd been thinking all through my Christian life, what does it mean to be a disciple, to be an example, if I'm the bait, am I worth following? I had this just overwhelming sense of responsibility. That little dude's going to follow me through the rest of his life. Will I be worth him following? What will he learn from me? Because I learned that my son would learn how to treat a woman by the way I treated his mother. My daughters would learn how a woman should be treated by the way they saw me treat their mother. That's what they should expect. That's discipleship. It's not sitting down with a curriculum. It's giving someone your very life. The last implication, and we'll close, that challenges me, that flows out of this, that I guess I want to leave with you who are young parents and you who are teenagers, is this process started with Jewish children at the age of what? Six. Where they memorized scripture and they learned what it meant. Why so young? What challenges me through that is that if we as parents do not deposit the truth of the word of God, God's truth view on life into the hearts and minds of our children, then someone else will. It's that simple. What Jewish children were provided with from that age was a foundation of truth from God's perspective with which they could filter the journey of life through, which they could test things against, measure things against. If they're not getting that, believe me, this current world, particularly in the Western culture, is depositing unreality into truth at a, into children at a frightening rate. I heard a little girl recently say, nine years old, talking about things, and her comment was, well, that's if I'm a girl. 
I don't want to get into that particular ideology and issue. But what I'm saying is, if you aren't depositing truth and living that truth out in a way that people can imitate, they're going to get it from somewhere. They're going to get it from somewhere. This is why we must feed the scriptures. Really quickly, you wouldn't get this unless you know the background. Mary, when she conceived Jesus, went to stay with what? Elizabeth for how long? Three months, the first trimester. What was practiced in the Jewish culture was in the first trimester, older woman would read the Torah over the womb of the pregnant woman. Babies can hear in the womb. And the word is a supernatural word. All our kids, when they were in the cot, I would sit sometimes by their cot, and like with our eldest daughter, Amy, I read her the entire Gospel of John, not in one night. But sometimes I sit and just read the Scripture, or you're nursing them in the early hours of the morning, and you just pray, you quote Scripture. Pip did the same, and would worship at the piano with them. Just keeping them enveloped. They're all on their own journey. But there is a deposit, a foundation of truth that's there that will come back. But if it's not there, what's the Holy Spirit got to work with? This challenges me now as I'm trying to influence the next generation of grandchildren that we have from 18 years of age to 18 months. And boy, grandkids watch you closely. And they tell you the truth. Papa, your jokes are terrible. <laughs> that is discipleship. It's a lifestyle, not a curriculum. Let's stand, shall we? Thank you for your patience and time. Father, as we stand in your presence, we are humbled and in awe of you that at some point in each of our journeys, in a sense, you walked up to us and said, come follow me. Help us to walk in your footsteps in such a way that what covers us is the influence of Christ the character of Christ that clothes us so that as we go about our daily lives and others cross our paths, walk in our footsteps, watch our lives, that they will see something that is different. Not perfect, but real and authentic as we seek to love you with all our heart and to follow you with the grace and the strength you give us. May we be good bait to lure people into the kingdom of God. Father, I pray your blessing over every person, every family represented here today. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Amen.